Welcome to Straight Outta Health IT. Getting into health tech is rough, but here's an unfiltered dialogue of healthcare leaders and influencers covering a wide variety of issues affecting healthcare and the health tech industry. And now your host, Christopher Cunney. Again, I'm excited to have our two industry experts on uh, the podcast today, and we look forward to getting their insights on this uh, growing crisis around the opioid epidemic. And before I get their comments and feedback about what's happening, I just wanted to share with our audience some statistics that I found. Um, From 1999 to 2020, there have been more than 564,000 people who have unfortunately died from an overdose involving opioids, including prescription and illicit opioids. The rise in uh, opioid deaths can be outlined really in three major areas and timeframes as well. The first phase uh, began with the increase in prescribing of opioid uh, medications in the 90s uh, with overdose overdose deaths involving prescription opioids and natural and semi-synthetic opioids such as methadone uh, increasing and has been increasing since 1999. The second wave began in 2010 with a rapid increase of deaths as a result of the use of heroin um, on the black market. And then finally, this third wave that has recently occurred, and it started around 2013 uh, with a significant increase in uh, overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids, uh, particularly those involving illicitly manufactured drugs such as fentanyl. The market for illicitly manufacturing uh, manufactured fentanyl continues to, to change. However, it can be found in a wide combinations of dr- illicit drugs such as uh, heroin, counterfeit pills, cocaine, et cetera. As well as there are other drugs that are starting to be introduced into the market that are um, opioid based as well that continue to affect uh, this population. And it covers all socio demographic areas as well too in our community. With that, I'm very interested in getting the commentary from Dr. Seti, uh, about, you know, what's happening in the market today, you know, and what's happening as it relates to uh, chronic uh, care, uh, chronic pain management and the use of uh, uh, opioids uh, for its treatment. Dr. Seti? Oh, thanks, Chris, for that great introduction. It's an complicated topic, and I'll try my best to put it all together and uh, in a way uh, that uh, that makes sense. Of course, it was an easy topic. We probably wouldn't be here talking about it. Exactly. Uh, we'd already have a solution, right? Absolutely. Uh, but as you correctly said earlier, opioid prescribing by physicians uh, exploded uh, and created the uh, prescription opioid crisis. Uh, we, uh, as, as a group, uh, I guess it was before my generation, so I can't take all the blame, uh, but uh, the generation before were really pressured uh, by regulators such as the Joint Commission, uh, which regulates physicians and hospitals, who said it's the fifth vital sign and you better get those scores down to zero. Right. There better be no pain or it's going to be a mark against you. Uh, Pharma came in here and incentivized people and said, you've got to follow those recommendations and here's all the tools. And by the way, we'll give you some extra uh, speaking engagements and money to do it and fly you around to to be an expert if you prescribe a lot of medications. And then physicians compelled by all of this and their own incentives and uh, in in some cases, uh, greed, uh, uh, prescribed and over 
prescribed opioids. And that created kind of that first phase and led to the history lesson that you gave uh, further down the line. Uh, okay. But the nice thing about it is uh, uh, that uh, as much as we uh, we were complicit in some of the problem, we can also be part of the solution. That's where my partner and I come in. Um, uh, as uh, as uh, we start, I'd like to kind of give you a little bit of basics. People often confuse chronic pain management and the opioid crisis. While link, they're not completely the same, and I'll try and contrast them. No, that, that would be uh, chronic, very helpful, because I, I think I'm a little confused as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thanks. Uh, Chronic pain is a state lasting uh, of pain, a pain state lasting more than three months. Around this time, the nervous system becomes reprogrammed to perceive pain differently. Uh, and it may not be something that makes sense physiologically. For example, a feather or a breeze could become intensely painful depending on how your body processes it. Uh, this kind of pain is the number one cause of disability and disease burden globally. 20%, uh, about one in five Americans one in four people in the Medicare population have some level of chronic pain. Uh, about 10% of them have high impact, meaning it causes severe disability in their life. Uh, and uh, most, uh, around 80 to 90% can't work uh, because of, uh, of this kind of problem. They tend to be at home. So it has a huge impact and burden on society. Sure. There's certain risk factors. Go ahead, Chris. No, I'm saying sure. I, yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there's certain risk factors that can make that process worse. Uh, we try to measure in, in our in our work, for example, which, which we'll talk about, uh, psychological indices of mood as well as physical activity to understand this better. Uh, these things uh, can make... Uh, uh, things better or they can make it worse depending on where in the cycle you are. Uh, ultimately, we need to understand all these things and how they fit together in order to improve quality of life. And that's what we try to focus on. So proper pain management of an injury may prevent chronic pain uh, and make it manageable. And that's why it's important for your fellow doctors uh, uh, to uh, uh, make good prescribing decisions and for you to follow their advice uh, and our service can be a very useful one in the process. So while also complex, uh, I'll try to avoid oversimplification, uh, but I want to explain uh, the next part of it, uh, and that's uh, um, addiction. When medications are used in ways that are not intended for behavioral health or kind of that high that we often talk about, this can lead to dependence and behaviors of addiction. Uh, so when people are in proper pain management and follow their doctor's directions, it's unlikely that they would go down that road. Right. Uh, but if they start to get their medicines off the street, uh, if they start to do it for a high uh, or a good feeling, then it's not part of pain management. It starts to take you down that other road. Uh, and part of what we die, try to do is identify those risk factors and keep people from going down that road. So when pain management's not done properly, it's possibly can lead to bad pain paid management behaviors that lead to addiction. Examples could be taking untreated, uh, unused pain medication, like from a, from a, a cabinet, maybe your uh, dad or your uh, uh, wife's uh, unused prescription uh, in order to, uh, to get high. It could be uh, buying it on the street. Um, 
there are some populations that are more vulnerable because we don't want to treat their pain properly. Right. As you might guess, those who live in poverty or suffer some racial bias. So there are some links between pain uh, and uh, addiction. But generally speaking, if you see a physician, you follow their directions and you do things as, as prescribed, you're not going to have an addiction. So that's one thing I like to make clear. Proper pain management prevents addiction, even taking opioids under the care of a physician and following the order, their directions can prevent addiction. Uh, so uh, pain management when done properly can actually prevent a lot of the harms that you were describing. No, that's great. That's very enlightening. Um, I think we sometimes forget that, you know, these drugs have a positive impact. If to your point, you know, managed properly, it's when we abuse them and you know, take advantage of them than when they can become very detrimental to our health. So uh, thanks for the explanation. That was very enlightening. I know for me, I'm sure for others as well. That's great. Brian, why don't you share a little bit of your background and give us your, uh, your view on how you two of you got together? Sure. Um, so, you know, uh, started, I kind of always wanted to be an anesthesiologist and pain medicine physician. I had a family friend growing up who was one and, um, you know, kind of culminated in me uh, going to medical school and eventually uh, where I am now at Johns Hopkins Hospital in anesthesia and pain medicine. But along the way, I had mentors who created digital health products as well as medical devices, and they were mentors and uh, worked closely with them. Uh, one was Thomas Errico when I was at uh, uh, NYU, who has patented and um, uh, uh, prolifically and uh, developed medical uh, devices for spine surgery. Watching that process and doing um, research in his lab led me to wanting to, you know, use my skills and what I had, uh, you know, at my disposal of being able to prototype and invent and patent and do software development myself. And, you know, my desire to be both a physician and a patient advocate to, you know, kind of navigate this very complex uh, healthcare uh, transformation that is uh, you know, occurring right now. And as Amar alluded to, we first met uh, in an advocacy group for anesthesia in Maryland and found uh, that we both had uh, similar interests, backgrounds, and desires to, you know, help others through innovation and, and entrepreneurship. Um, and, and that, you know, culminated in the formation of uh, Patient Premier and, and ultimately um, our, our principal product, Pain Scored. That's great. Um, I do want to delve into a little more detail about Patient Premier later in the program, but I did want to get your insights on a few other topics uh, uh, around this issue of uh opioid um, epidemic of the opioid epidemic you know local communities are are increasingly called upon uh, to address this crisis um, which involves you know interventions across the continuum of care whether it's prevention harm reduction or treatment or recovery you know these programs are aimed at preventing new cases of opioid use disorder or OUD. Mm -hmm. uh, trying to identify those early cases of opioid misuse, you know, uh, ensuring the effective treatment and employing harm reduction strategies and support of the vulnerable populations. I'm just curious, how can, you know, communities begin to prevent opioid addictions and overdose deaths by improving the lives of those struggling with OUD by addressing social determinants of health? Disparities related to OUDs, especially in the era of COVID-19. 
Um, what are some, you know, some of the focuses I know some communities are working on are things like employment and housing and education, but from your perspective, you know, what can these um, communities do to address the challenges that uh, hit these most vulnerable communities the hardest when it comes to the op opioid use disorder? And I'll start with you, Brian. Uh, yes, so I think it's a multifaceted problem and certainly has not been solved as the COVID uh, epidemic had shown, um, you know, greatly worsened this problem. So we, we definitely don't have a handle on it by, by any means and overdose deaths uh, you know, starting to, to creep back up. Um, you know, there's a, a kind of a, a myriad of uh, approaches to the, the problem, and it, it kind of centers around resources that are provided to the community um, when, you know, you can identify substance abuse and you have somebody who is, uh, you know, willing to, uh, you know, stop. That's, you know, pathway for some substance abuse programs. And, uh, you know, we, we have things like methadone clinics uh, that, that can help and can help, you know, wean people off when they found illicit substances to replace uh, pharmaceuticals or if they were just on illicit substances to begin with. But that that process is, is just one of the many different, uh, you know, aspects of the, the opioid crisis. And sure. it doesn't have to be methadone. It can also be buprenorphine. So one of the largest things right now is trying to get providers uh, waivers to write for a uh, medicine um, that doesn't hold as much stigma as perhaps a methadone clinic that you can uh, be prescribed uh, buprenorphine um, to uh, kind of help you come off of the uh, opioids that you are uh, you know, addicted to. And that's, you know, one kind of avenue is to expand alternative therapies, get more people enrolled in those uh, prescribing of, of those therapies. But that's just when you've recognized the problem. And right. the whole other end is when you've not recognized the problem and it, it, it goes into, as you, you know, alluded to, employment status, uh, uh, mental health, social exactly. support. Um, and that's a very challenging things to uh, try to target resources to, but there are, you know, mechanisms to do so. And, and that's uh, a little bit more of a gray area. Uh, whereas, you know, once it's a recognized problem, you know, it, it's something that, uh, you know, can can be uh, you know, targeted, but I'll turn it over to Amar for, for his thoughts as well. Sure. Amar, what, what's your thoughts on this subject? Yeah. Uh, in the beginning, I like to uh, make one very important point is to avoid conflating the opioid epidemic with pain management. Uh, they're two separate topics, really, conceptually at least. It, it helps to think about it that way. Pain management, uh, when done effectively, uh, can involve pain medications like opioids, or they may not involve opioids. They may involve interventional pain medicines. And this is related to uh, pain that exists for long periods of time. What I wanna make sure people understand is that taking pain medicine does not mean that you're gonna become addicted. When right. done properly in a, a monitored manner by following the instructions and avoiding uh, diversion or pills being taken by someone who wasn't prescribed the medication, you can do everything very safely and effectively. Now there's certain populations that are more high risk and if you can identify those people ahead of time, you can more easily target resources so that effective pain management does not lead to 
bad behaviors in the future. So as long as you follow your doctor's orders, you are generally very safe. The other side of the coin is the uh, uh, opioid epidemic that we've been talking about. And that involves people who either because they're denied effective pain medicine, uh, and there's some factors within our, our medical system that keep people from getting effective pain medicine that may divert them to an environment where they're not getting, uh, where they're getting it off the street, or because they're using that medicine to achieve a behavioral effect, that sure. feeling of being high, that can lead to the opioid crisis as well. So I like to, in the beginning, make sure that we separate the two concepts. Exactly. Um, and, and let me stop you there. What are some yeah. of those factors that, you know, impact uh, the use of, you know, these drugs as well, too, or, or the lack thereof, uh, or appropriate administration, administering of those drugs? Yeah. Um, in, in our country, we definitely have uh, a, a, a bias uh for socioeconomic reasons, uh, to avoid prescribing medications for people we perceive who are, you know, uh, for various reasons, going to be more likely to abuse those medications. Those things aren't necessarily true, uh, but there's a perception among a lot of healthcare providers that they will undertreat pain in these vulnerable groups, typically people of lower socioeconomic status who are uh, racially more likely to be colored. Uh, they tend to undertreat, and that tends to lead to. Uh, a number of patients being forced to go outside the system. Not everyone, this is still a small percentage, uh, sure. but that conf that ends up leading to people who leave the uh, leave uh, pain management and end up going into uh, uh, the opioid, becoming victims of the opioid crisis. And then uh, outside of that, you have people who for various uh, risk factors such as uh, maybe anxiety, maybe depression, all of which are we know poorly treated in the current system. Mental health is very poorly addressed by the uh, uh, by the current healthcare system. Uh, may end up going to the street uh, to to self treat uh, either with medications or alcohol that they shouldn't be, and then that can lead to uh, you know further progression down the line. So the idea here is that effective pain management. Uh, when delivered across the board to all people equally, uh, can really help influence and uh, avoid a lot of the problems with the opioid crisis. Not all of them, but many of the problems. Brian, any, uh, anything you want to add there? Yeah, two, two things. You know, one is that we did hit on a lot of the risk factors. You know, you said poverty, unemployment, and you know, kind of this personal history or family history of substance abuse. Um, and it's also some behavioral things, such as uh, people who take on more risk than others are more likely um, to, to uh, you know, have addictive tendencies. And this is some hand waving here, but it has been studied, and there are screening and assessments um, that can. Uh, you know, uh, uh, provide some light into, um, you know, we know these risk factors. And then if you take, if you have a patient to take an assessment or someone take an assessment, uh, you can actually, you know, have a, a better idea of their risk for this misuse. So that sounds good. Um, I'm curious, obviously, part of the reason why the two of you came together to start this company was to try to close the gap in, in, in this area um, through the use of technology. And so I'm just curious, uh, I'm sure audiences as well, too. One, how, how is technology now being leveraged 
to help address, you know, the opioid use disorder, um, to help close the disparity gap around um, pain management, um, and just in general, you know, reduce the likelihood of individuals becoming addicted to uh, these substances. Yeah, uh, I, I think that, you know, first, there's kind of a misnomer that people believe that perhaps pain is just purely subjective and there's not an, an objective measure. Uh, but that's not true. You know, similarly, as I you know alluded to, you know, one could assess for the risk of misuse of substances due to known risk factors. You could also assess for pain. And there's, um, you know, measures that you can, you know, discuss with uh, patients in the form of an assessment to, you know, understand, um, you know, their level of pain, disability, and the impact on their, you know, uh, well-being, mental well-being, uh, as well as, you know, functional status, uh, et cetera. And those, um, you know, metrics are able to be, you uh, you know, digitized, tracked, and trended, and those uh, allow themselves to be uh, placed in a digital platform. Whereas, if you took the, you know, the the kind of approach I, I discussed earlier, where you thought you know pain is purely just subjective, it's just however you're feeling. There's no painometer that you can strap to somebody. It's not like a a heart rate monitor where I, I know your heart rate by just directly monitoring it. I don't have a painometer that I can get your pain level without asking you. Um, you know, it's not exactly uh, that subjective. It's it's actually fairly more objective, and then lends itself to you know d digital platforms to um, you know help patients, providers, insurers, etc. Uh, you know, make sense of what is perceived to be a, a subjective experience. Exactly, Amar. Did you have anything else you want to add to that? Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Uh, I think one of the big things that we've been able to do is take something that's highly subjective and quantify it so that we can track it, measure it, and see how uh, uh, patients are doing over a long period of time. And that's something that's been lacking in the current system. That level of subjectivity led to variations in care so that physicians were doing one thing for one patient, patient totally different for a same, similar patient in the same clinic, or physicians in one part of the country doing things very differently than others. And that's different than, say, what you might see for blood pressure or, or other disease states. And if we can help standardize the process by objectively measuring something that's difficult to measure, we can bring a lot of clarity to a subject that's very hard to clarify uh, and understand. Uh, and that's kind of our initial approach at all of this is let's make this easier to track, trend, and follow. And that's where data-driven approaches and technology help so much. Well, that, that actually leads us into learning more about patient premiere and what you guys are doing through the use of technology to help us, again, address this issue. So uh, maybe, uh, Amar, you could take a few minutes and, and Brian, please jump in as well too and share with us, you know, uh, what is patient premiere? Um, and how is it now being used to uh, help manage um, the challenges associated with the uh, opioid addiction crisis? So uh, Patient Premier at its heart is, is really a data analytics company. We developed algorithms uh, 
basically computer learning tools to help take complex data and reduce it into information that physicians and patients can use to better uh, understand how patients are doing and improve their care and communication. Uh, what we were able to do in our early phases is to uh, find a, uh, a way to document this information uh, so that uh, physicians can actually use it as part of care management. Uh, this is a remote concept in which patients are monitored remotely uh, and we're able to see how they're doing in their real lives. Uh, we add a layer on top of that where we call patients and help them uh, log in, use the system, ask them questions, and find out uh, whether they're following their treatment plans. All of this is used at the end of the month to document better for the physicians, have better interactions with their patients, uh, and also uh, to uh, get some level of reimbursement or payment uh, from insurance companies, uh, which is a win-win-win across the board. As we evolve, uh, what we're doing is we're taking this data and helping insurance companies and payers uh, find out how to best pay for things, how to pay for things without making it a struggle for patients and providers. In other words, if the data supports it, let's get it approved and not have to wait for all these hurdles for physicians and patients to jump through. I can't tell you how many times I hear uh, about how frustrating it is for patients to have uh, to deal with insurance companies. And the better we can create processes to allow the data to make that automatic, I think the better off everyone will be. Uh, so that, that's how we're looking to uh, you know, provide value to the system as a whole. Uh, both uh, in the current reimbursement model and in the future, what we call value-based care model of care. Uh, Brian, anything you want to add there? Yeah, and I think that, you know, it started just with a simple premise that, you know, the current standard of care was guesswork. You know, you didn't really know exactly how a patient was doing in between office visits at home after a new medication or procedure was performed. Sure, you can ask them when you saw them next after 90 days and, uh, uh, you know, ask them, but, you know, that that wasn't a very effective, you know, method and is, uh, you know, kind of suffers from, you know, medications and, you know, procedures or something that have to be done continuously and wax and wane and it's, you know, kind of effectiveness. And this is very challenging. You have uh, people who are unable to recall, you know, how they were several weeks ago. You have, um, you know, dynamic changes, uh, such as, you know, just the patient may have uh, had to travel an hour to come see you. And uh, when they drive in the car, it hurts them. You know, and things like that, that make it, uh, uh, you know, hard to understand how someone is doing at home in between office visits. And, you know, our, um, you know, kind of principal solution here in our beachhead market in the pain medicine space was to demystify that, quantify it, take the guesswork out of it, and then through that measuring, learn. And that's what we're doing right now is we're, we're learning. We are learning, um, you know, how to empower patients. We're learning how to um, make providers have better decision-making surrounding clinical care and how payers can have better data such that they can, as Amar alluded to, make sure that patients are getting high quality, fast care without hangups. You know, right now what's going on is if somebody wants a shot or an injection or any new medication, they go to their pharmacy after the order is put in, 
and they usually get hit with a prior auth and the doctor has to fill it out. It might take a long time to get approved and the patient goes without their medication and same thing for the procedure. I want to uh, you know, make that a little bit more streamlined um, and you know, we, we believe that we can kind of just use this health data with, with just integrity and purpose and, and kind of clean this up for patients, providers, and payers. And where do you see the future of this type of technology going to improve the treatment uh, of patients uh, in this in this space as well? I, you've got it sounds like you've got a rich repository of information that's that that's being leveraged today by uh, payers and some providers, but I can see also how, you know, this data could be used in research, you know, uh, in education and other ways of, you know, making clinicians smarter about and more aware of the better treatment protocols in this space, uh, more sensitive to the different, you know, ethnic groups that they're dealing with um, and, you know, holding them quite honestly accountable too, in some degree. Uh, around how they're treating the different spirit groups that are under their care. Just curious from your perspective, you know, what are some of the use cases, not only that you see today, but that you can foresee in the future that a technology like this will be able to support? So, Chris, uh, everything you said is 100% spot on. I think we need to hire you to work for us. Uh, (laughs) And... Let's talk about some of those disparities in in, men, in chronic pain right now, uh, because sure. I think they're somewhat telling. Uh, it's about 65% of adults over 65 have some level of chronic pain. When we say chronic pain, this is pain that lasts more than three months. Right. Uh, when it lasts that long, it starts to reprogram your nervous system, your nerves to your spinal cord, your spinal cord to your brain, the connections within your brain. And there's certain things that affect that, like anxiety and depression, uh, being uh, physically uh, unable to get up and move. All these things make it worse. And if we can unwind these processes, we can make things better. So we know it's highly prevalent. A lot of people have it. We also know that uh, it's uh, um, it's worse uh, and it's high, more likely uh, to be a problem in people with uh, lower uh, socioeconomic status, if they have less income, if uh, they are um, uh, Hispanic, if they're African-American, uh, there's a perception uh, that uh, not, uh, so not only do they uh, have higher levels of pain, there's a perception that they're going to not use or participate in treatment better, so they tend not to be treated right. So by using our data-driven approach, we can look at all of these patients in a continuum and see if providers are treating everyone equally, treating everyone with the correct treat, correct treatment and whether their results are progressing in the right manner that they should be. Because right now it's so subjective. We have no idea if my variation in care for one type of patient versus another is a reflection of me or a reflection of the patient. I wanna be able to say over long periods of time, because it does take time to figure these things out, are we treating patients across the board of all socioeconomic statuses, of all races, genders? Um, are we treating them uh, well? Uh, exactly. And that's something we'd love to be able to answer for the system of a whole. Our long-term evolution is to really be the, quote, API, the, the, uh, the common core platform for pain so that everyone 
uh, every EMR, whether it's Epic or Cerner that you might be on, every RPM, remote patient monitoring company you work with, every clinic that you're in, everyone uses a service, either ours or something like ours, to be able to analyze that data, get additional data when needed, and identify whether there are gaps in care and consistencies in care that are causing harm. That sounds great. Brian, any additional thoughts? Yeah, I think that, you know, the learning component is, you know, what, what's so exciting is that, you know, what we what, what we had prior was something that was unmeasured and guesswork. Now you're having something that is now measured, measured at home where it wasn't. And through that, uh, we're able to find things that are both, uh, you know, just not intuitive and often counterintuitive to uh, help everybody, patients, providers, et cetera. Um, and those are the kind of medical problems that we have now. You know, the problems facing the system, including the opioid epidemic, these are not easy problems and they're, they're counterintuitive. What you would think might solve the problem worsens the problem. And the only way to cut through it is with objectionable data, trials, new products and services. And, and that's where we're at. And that's what we're most excited about. You know, as Amar alluded to, we might not have a painometer that will strap to somebody and it'll tell you exactly what their pain is and, you know, uh, objectify it. But it, it will be something, you know, along the lines of, um, you know, the more that we we know the better that we can predict and, and, and uh, understand not only, you know, kind of, uh, what is most likely to help, um, but would be, you know, just the best thing to do at any given time. That's great. I, I want to commit. I'm sorry. I was going to say, Brian, you said objectionable data. I think you meant objective data. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Maybe object uh, uh, objectionable to some people, depending, exactly. <laughs> depending on the results, but <laughs> but to your point, point well taken. I, I do want to thank both of you for the work that you're doing in this space that is so oh, needed thanks. right now. This is a topic that's in many cases misunderstood. Uh, there's not enough research and knowledge done on it, and I think the work that you're doing is going to have lasting and long-reaching effects in, in this you know, part of the delivery of care. So I want to thank you uh, for your efforts here, and I look forward to hearing more about Patient Premier and, and the, the impact that you're making on um, the opioid crisis as a whole. We've got one minute left uh, to uh, offer kind of some final thoughts. And both of you are doctors, and now you're entrepreneurs and technology junkies. Uh, I'm just curious, is there any words of wisdom you would give, you know, other aspiring doctors who have a great idea and they feel like technology can help to address this issue uh, that you would share with them? And I'll give you each of you 30 seconds to uh, make a comment. Yeah, uh, the main thing I'd say is it's a uh, it's a long road. Don't give up. Don't be afraid to change if the data uh, suggests that you should change uh, and Part of it is a, a real regimented way of finding the right business model for a great idea. Uh, not all great models, uh, great ideas have a great business model behind them. So you gotta combine the two uh, to really come up with what you ultimately create, uh, turn into a great company. Right. Uh, you know, I think that you have to have just the utmost uh, resilience and perseverance. You know, it has to be something that you just feel like, uh, you know, drives you every day to actually see that mission and, and fulfill that. 
Um, and at the same time, it's almost like uh, something like investing. You know, you, you can put a small amount of money away uh, every single week. It, it might not seem like a lot, but over a decade, you know, it turns into something great. And, and that's very true here for, for entrepreneurship. Well, great advice. Uh, again, thank you, Dr. Amar Seti and Dr. Brian Maroscochi. Correct? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you both. Co-founders of an amazing company, Patient Premier. Uh, we look forward to, again to hearing uh, continued you know, success in your endeavors. I would love to have you back to continue this conversation and get an update on how things are progressing with your company. Uh, thank you all for taking time out your busy schedule to listen to another episode of Straight Out of Health IT. As usual, we appreciate your comments, feedback, and ideas about topics we can cover on this program. Let's make this episode go viral. You can find us on all the major podcast um, platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, you name it, we're there. Uh, love to have you as a continued supporter. Tell your friends, family, and loved ones that we're here, and I'll see you next time on Straight Out of Health IT. Thank you so much for listening to Straight Out of Health IT. We hope you enjoyed today's guest. For more unfiltered dialogue of healthcare leaders and influencers, be sure to tune in next week. For the show notes, transcripts, and resources, please visit Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite streaming platform. We invite you to give us feedback by reaching out to Christopher Cunny on LinkedIn, just searching for Straight Outta Health IT, and you'll find us. We are constantly having live discussions about diverse topics in the industry. 